ba, 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 da, ba, ba. Boom. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 118 of Drinks with Tony with Joshua Samuel Brown, the author of Spinning Karma by the book after you listen to the show. Well, here's the last episode of Drinks with Tony for 2020. What a wonderful year. While people have hope, I have a sense of dread. We're to the point where we're going to look back a year from now and say, wow, do you remember the innocent times when we only had a pandemic and had to wear masks? Oh, the glass, my friends, the glass is half empty. But what matters is how we adjust, I, I guess. Wow. Dark. Why so dark, Tony? My mom's Norwegian, so I'm the feel-good movie of the year. Speaking of movies, here's a guest who wrote the screenplay and then adapted it to a book. Yes, that happens more than you'd probably think. Hi, this is Joshua Samuel Brown, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Joshua Samuel Brown. He's the author of Spinning Karma. He's also written 12 or 13 books for Lonely Planet. Joshua, how are you? I am doing pretty well, all things considered. It's 2020 and nothing's on fire and Nazis aren't marching through my town. So it's a great day in 2020. I'm yes, because you're in Portland, right? I'm in Portland, yeah. It's a thing. Nazis marching through Portland. Yeah, no, it's it's like two months ago, we were like, holy, am I allowed to say the S-H-I-T word or holy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. I was like, holy shit, they're going to be marching possibly down our street because we've got the the largest Black Lives Matter mural in Portland. So we assume that, you know, they like symbology. They might have marched down our street, but they didn't come here. They got lost, apparently. Good. We like Nazis getting lost. I do like that, yeah. I I don't, I mean, it's... Everyone's just, just like the whole world, um, the collective conscious now is like, I'm going to shove it in your face. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm going to shove that in your face. It's just like, can you guys just go home and relax and read a book? Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> anyway, uh, 12 or 13 books from Lonely Planet. Uh, a, a guy writes so many Lonely Planet books, he loses count. I think that's rad. It's it it all kind of just blurred for me at the end. I was on the road for you know for seven straight years, and this is when you and I saw each other the most because I'd be passing through San Francisco. I'm like, hey, Tony, I'm in San Francisco on the way to Malaysia or Taiwan or Singapore. Let's hang out because San Francisco is one of like three West Coast airports that I would generally leave from and then spend two or three days hanging out before going on the next mission. So. But yeah, it's easy to lose count. Those were the days I loved meeting you in the Mission District. Uh, just like, it was like every once in a while, Tony, I'm in town and where do you want to go? And I'd be like, oh, I'll see you over there. Cool. It's time for me to get my last good Mexican food before heading to parts of the world where there is no Mexican food available. Right, right. That's right. What's, um, I mean, you're, you're like the most well-traveled guy I know. And, you, and you've also, I mean, you also writing these books is not just all fun and games, right? When, when you're, when you're in the midst of writing a lonely planet book, what, what's, what's the deal? What are you signed up for? You, what you're signed up for is doing a great deal of travel and inspecting things that are pretty, you know, not all that exciting going to hotels and making sure that the hotels, you know, are basically decent places that you would recommend. And then writing about them, asking a lot of questions like, um, you know, 
what time does the bus arrive here? And, uh, and will the schedule change? And, and getting that down into a spreadsheet, which is spreadsheets are my least favorite form of communication, but towards the end, I had to use a lot of them. Um, and just getting a lot of, it's 75 to 90% really boring information that you have to get correct because those are the things that you will be called on. And then, you know, 25 to maybe 10% of like, wow, this is fun stuff where I can put in my own uh, spin or my own ideas about why you should visit this place and interviewing really cool people who have like an organic cacao farm in, you know, the jungles of Southern Belize or somebody, an artist who does super interesting things with wood and metal, you know, in Yunnan province. But that's the minority. The, the majority of the work is just getting schedules, getting addresses, making sure that they're correct in both whatever, in both, you know, English and whatever the other language that they're going to have to read is. So, uh, and so when you, so what was your first assignment? What was your first book? And were you, did you realize that it was going to be kind of a lot of fact checking? No, no. My first book was uh, Vignettes of Taiwan, which was right. uh, you know, a, a series of a book of basically short stories and vignettes about Taiwan, which I, I thrust it into, I've no, there's no way to put it. I thrust it into <laughs> the hands of uh, Tony Wheeler, who started, uh, you know, Lonely Planet? I, he was at a book festival in Hong Kong, and I said something like, "You know, Mr. Wheeler, uh, you know, I'm a big time fan of, of Lonely Planet, and I just wrote this book about Taiwan, and I'd like to do the next Lonely Planet Taiwan guide." And he took it from me, and he said, "Like, oh, very good, Mr. Brown. I'll, I'll have, I'll look out over, and I'll have somebody write to you." And I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, great. He's just blowing me off." And then three weeks later, I got an email that's like, "Tony has read your book." He, he, you seem to know Taiwan. Would you be interested in doing a trial chapter and seeing if uh, you know there might be room for you to do the next Lonely Planet Taiwan guide? And of course, me being from New York and naturally suspicious of everybody, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do a trial chapter and then you're going to use it in a book and I'm never going to hear from you again. And luckily, I didn't say it in those words, but luckily Marina was her name, was the person who worked uh, you know, in the office. And uh, she was like, she had heard that before and she's like, look, just do this job and, you know, just do this one trial chapter and the world will be your lonely planet oyster, which I took as a good sign. So I went up to Shenzhen and I did a trial chapter complete with, and I still have it somewhere, by the way, complete with maps that I drew in magic marker and, you know, a reasonable facsimile of what the lonely planet style should be or what it was at the time. And um, two, three weeks later, I got an email that was like, yeah, we, you've got some potential. We'd like to sign you up for the first book. And can you get to Taiwan? I think it was in March or April when it started. I was like, yeah, for sure. I wasn't living in Taiwan at the time. I was living in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, that, that's where it started from. And so the first book that I did was first Lonely Planet Guide was a version of Taiwan. And then from then on, it was Belize and Singapore and back to Taiwan and then back to Belize and back to Singapore with the stopover in China and later on in Malaysia and just a lot of traveling. Which, which just, you know, it sounds like a dream too. I mean, you've been everywhere. You have friends everywhere. You're the guy that I go, hey, do you know someone? I'll say some Pogodok town in the Pogodok middle of nowhere in some country that's in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, oh yeah, talk to Bill. <laughs> but not in, not in Europe though. You really? know? And not, I mean, my, and that's, and I feel like if I had stuck with it longer, I mean, now we're in the middle of COVID. So 
every except for one friend who has been working who's basically the luckiest person that i know with lonely planet she always has work my friend celeste who's amazing who's the, she is when you look at me like wow that guy is well traveled i've never been anywhere i look at her and say wow she's well traveled i've never been anywhere but um she's the only lonely planet writer that i know that's still doing gigs uh for wow. the company but um you know she's also been to France and she's been to Newfoundland for Lonely Planet, which I've lived there, but I've they keep turning me down to do guides apparently. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's I there's a gap in where I know people, and that is basically Europe and South America and and certainly Africa, which I've never been to, although my sister lived there. Yeah, I well, sure why, I, I've been to Mauritius, which technically is part of Africa, but I don't count that. <laughs> but um, what brought you to Thailand? Well, I mean, what brought you to Hong Kong? Why were you in Hong Kong? Uh, I had been living in China, uh, living a very footloose and fancy free life where I was just a, a freelance journalist, just traveling around and doing stories for various websites back in the day when like websites were like, oh yeah, you can make money with them. Yeah. And different newspapers and magazines. And this is when I started writing for Cherry Bleeds. Uh -huh. um, and at one point, I believe that it was 2004 or 2000, it was 2004. Um, I left. I had a beautiful apartment. It was a three-story apartment that I could rollerblade in. It was that big. I paid $100 a month for it. It had a circular staircase. It was the largest apartment I've ever lived in. And uh, I had to basically leave China every six months. I'd have to just go to Hong Kong and then just renew my visa. It was no big deal. And they'd give me like another six months. And I left Hong Kong and I left China to go into Hong Kong to redo my visa. And I went to the same visa office that I'd been using for years. And they're like, oh, we're really sorry there's a kerfuffle now between America and China because of something that, uh, you know, some political thing. We can no longer give Americans six month visas. We can only give you a one month visa and you're lucky to get it. And we can't promise that we're going to be able to give this to you in perpetuity. So I had to basically take that one month visa, go back to my beautiful apartment where I had like furniture and like just a, a collection of DVDs and stuff like that. And I was just living the life of Riley there. And I had to basically flog everything. You know, I think that I actually left the apartment without, I mean, she obviously kept the security deposit, but I didn't know what to say to the landlady. So I just kind of left. And I think I wrote her an email saying, hey, it's political problems, I got to leave, which of course you rent to a foreigner. It's kind of par for the course there. And then I left and because I still wanted to be able to come back and forth to do work in China, I got a place in Hong Kong, which I no longer needed that exit visa. I no longer needed to leave. They give you a visa for 90 days there and there you can just take a boat to Macau. So it was no big deal. But uh, yeah, so I had to give up that you know beautiful big apartment for a much smaller apartment, still in a cool place in Hong Kong called Lama Island, AKA Hippie Island. And um, yeah, I lived there for another two years and it was around that time that I got hired by Lonely Planet and then I moved to Taiwan, back to Taiwan, which I had been to Taiwan before. Right, right. Before. Well, what, what was it? Because you were you're from New York, and then, and you were writing in New York. What what did you see like an opening where you're like, wait a second, I'm interested in uh, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese in Asia, and I want to go there. And how can I angle myself to be there as a journalist and writer? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because um, I've been thinking about cultural diversity and and my own place, my own experiences as an outsider because I you know I grew up in New York City and you know I don't know if, if we're going to be on uh you know people will see me but I, I am of the Caucasian persuasion uh but I grew up in a very um I grew up in a neighborhood 
but basically the, the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, refer to Staten Island as Shaolin. And I, you know, grew up kind of in that neighborhood, which is Stapleton, a Staten Island, and then later St. George. But I grew up in a neighborhood where I, you know, as a Caucasian was like sort of a minority. And so when I went to college, and I went to college in upstate New York in this very place called Brockport, New York, which is a place where cow tipping is apparently, uh, was a thing when I went there, I felt <laughs> very uncomfortable. And then I felt like, oh, you know, everybody kind of looks superficially like me, but I don't feel at home here. And so when I got out of college, I'm like, I need to go someplace where I'm even more of an obvious, you know, outcast than any other place I've ever lived. And initially I was thinking about going to Japan to teach English because that was a thing in the early 90s, go to Japan and make money. But uh, I, I had very little money and I had no prospects in Japan. And uh, I, I was... I ate a lot at a place called Golden Pond Dim Sum in Rochester, New York. Don't look for it, it's not there anymore. And at one point I was in there and I was reading a book called like Teach English in Japan or something like that. And the owner of the restaurant, she looked at the book and she, she said, oh, which means basically fucking Japanese devils. I, you know, her words, not mine. Um, and, I, and I was like, what? And she's like, you don't want to go to Japan. They're very, they're very mean people there, which is not true. But uh, she was Taiwanese, as it turned out, and she had had that cultural experience. And uh, she then said, look, why don't you go to Taiwan? It's much nicer place. And if you want, I can help you to, to introduce you to people there. So I said, okay. And at the time, I knew that I didn't have enough money to start up in Japan. It's very expensive there. And I went back a week later, and she had like, this is before the internet. She had had somebody, <clears throat> she had had somebody fax listings from the English newspapers, English newspapers that I would later go on to write for years later. It's like, you know, teaching jobs there. She's like, here, you can call these places and they'll probably give you a job. If you want, I'll speak to them in Chinese and tell them that you're a nice person. So I called up one of the places and they were like, yeah, sure. If you get yourself here, just take the train and take the plane to Taiwan and then take the train to this town and we'll meet you there. We'll give you a job. You sound like a nice guy. And, uh, Literally, that's what happened. So I wound up moving to Taiwan and yeah, I fell in love with the place. And I lived there from basically 1994 till 1998, which is when I kind of started traveling around as a sweatshop inspector, living in China, going to Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, at that point, I had already learned enough Chinese that it's like, yeah, I'm not going to study Japanese now. And uh, I, I, I just that my life in that you know, what people might call greater China, which I don't use that phrase. I mean, Taiwan and Hong Kong and China and Macau. That's where my affection and love for that particular huge swath of the planet sort of uh, fell into place. And then years later, I went on to, not too many years later, I went on to uh, work for a magazine called Beijing Scene that doesn't exist anymore, but it was very formative. That's about the time that I started sending you stories for Cherry Bleeds. It was that 99, 2000? Is that about, is my timeline about right? Um, yeah, I think I started Cherry Bleeds in 2000. Um, it might have been right around there. Yeah, right, right around there. And then yeah. after that, you know, I just traveled around China and I would meet the weirdest people and I would write stories about them or I would have editors like 
Like, hey, if you're going to Chengdu, I never wound up doing this story, but uh, if you're going to Chengdu, there's a guy who for a few dollars will basically let you punch him as hard as you can because he's got some sort of Kung Fu thing and you should go see him. And I didn't wind up meeting him, but I did meet a doctor who did, let's just call it an invasive prostate massage and leave it at that. Did not undergo it, but I did watch him do it to somebody else. And that proved to be one of my most popular stories in the various websites and magazines and newspapers I was working for. But I would just travel around, find these terribly interesting people. And then I would write stories, take a few photos and then sell them to whatever magazines and newspapers and websites that you know would buy them from me. And at that point in China, we're talking 2001, 2002, 2004. Yeah. If I could make 250 bucks a month, I was living like, you know, I was living a charmed, almost Rudyard Kipling-esque life. You know, it's like, great, I can eat any food that I want. I can live in the nicest apartments that I, that I can find. And, you know, I'm, I'm living large. So, yeah, that was kind of, and I also got to write a lot of things. So that's where I got to write, you know, a big chunk of the, the articles that are on my website or in my portfolio or things like that. Some of which are good, some of which are bad, some of which are interesting and let's leave it at that but um a lot of the sort of characters that would later wind up in spinning karma are from that period in my life in some way shape or form it's a good thing you were reading from the japanese devils and the taiwanese lady told you that and the next thing you know your whole life changes isn't it crazy how life can change in a second and I, when Vignettes of Taiwan came out, I went back to Rochester because I'm like, hey, I, I, and I, cause I even put that in the forward of my first book. You really meant a lot to me. And I went there and it was closed down and I went to a neighbor and the neighbor was like, nah, they retired a couple of years back. We don't know where they are. It was a great little restaurant on Clinton Street. So Rochester's a, a really cool town. So it wasn't hmm. there and I tried to find them, but who knows? I don't even know if they're still alive. They were, yeah. Going back 1994 here, it's a while ago. Feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it was a long time ago. It's yeah, it's crazy how like time flies and it doesn't, especially during COVID. It's like yeah, it's something you know, something last year still feels like 10 years ago, then sure. something 10 years ago feels like 10 years ago. It's it's all <laughs> it's everything before COVID is now we refer to it as the before time. The before time. In the before time when you know you could go to a restaurant and you could hug somebody. <laughs> I know, yeah, actually hug. Um and, and Spinning Karma started out as a screenplay, is that right? It started as a screenplay. Uh, I went down and really, I wrote it, this was, I think, 2012. I had been to a Buddhist meditation retreat in Sri Lanka. It's a 10-day meditation at a place called Nilambe. And and uh, I, have you ever gone to like a 10-day a, a meditation sort of thing? I've gone to one hour meditation sort of things. That's as far as I've gotten. It's like that, but way longer. And this one was, it was interesting because um, it wasn't like Vipassana, which is super hardcore. Like this was more like, like Vipassana, which I've done a number of times and I call it Buddhist boot camp. This was more like Buddhist summer camp. Like there were a couple of guys there who you kind of had to maintain the vow of silence on the grounds, but we would sneak off and go up into the hills to smoke BDs. And then we would talk really quietly. And, you know, it was, it was a beautiful place. But at one point I remember seeing that a Sinhalese monk who was a bit rotund would come into the meditations. He would come in a little bit later than everybody else. And because he was a monk, he would sit on a slightly higher meditational uh, area and of course you're supposed to be meditating, but you're like looking at him because you're like, oh man, what's that guy doing? You know, it's his deal. And then later when it came to the food, which was all you know, very delicious Sri Lankan food that you ate with your hands, people 
the, would feed him. They would give him little plates of food and they'd make offerings to him and he would accept them graciously. But of course, because it's a vow of silence, nobody was speaking. So I started thinking, how do we even know that this guy is a monk? I mean, he could have just slapped on the ropes and be like, hey, I'm going to go up to Nalambe. I'm going to have a sweet deal. I'm going to get my own chamber. They're going to feed me. And it's all I got to do is kind of sit there. Nobody was asking him questions. Silent meditation. There was no wisdom being exchanged. Just his presence there was enough. And of course, I, I didn't ask him anything, but that thought turned into a kernel of what if somebody was a holy person, but did something that was arguably you know, not the right thing to do. And that's what turned into spinning karma for me, which I did originally write as a screenplay. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I wrote it as a screenplay and I went to one of those, I went to a class with John Truby. I don't know if you've ever done a John yeah, Truby. Yeah. No, I haven't done it. I have his uh, book, I have his book like right behind me, I believe. Yeah. Super, super useful. And, and I was like, oh yeah, no, let's give this, give this character a ghost world, a ghost story. Let's really look at what the motivations is. Let's put some other characters in there that will bounce and balance off. And I did this screenplay and I was very earnest about it. And I, then I attended like one of those seminars where you then, you know, get to pitch your screenplay to people. Oh, like, wow. Where was that at? This was in uh, right here in Portland. It was the Willamette. Okay. Uh, it was the Willamette Writers Festival, and I had three people who earnestly said, "This is funny. What a unique idea! There is no way in hell that any movie studio is ever going to do this because it involves Taiwan. It will almost certainly get anybody who is involved with this blackballed in China." And there's no way that anyone's gonna, you know, take that risk, especially given the rise and the rising importance of Chinese money in the film industry. Isn't so, that crazy? I mean, that's yeah. still today. That how oh, yeah. crazy it is where they even edit movies for the sure. Chinese market. Sure, and it's, absolutely. They'll take out characters completely. <laughs> absolutely. Like, I, this is new to this is news to me. I didn't know about this. No, it's it's absolutely huge, and you you can see it. I see it even when I watch Marvel movies. Um, and I'm like, like that scene in the Hong Kong sanctum in, in Doctor Strange, which I was very sad. It looked like a genuine neighborhood in Hong Kong. It was just filmed on a, on a sound studio, which is too bad. But I'm like, oh, that does look like Hong Kong. That will certainly that that appeals to me as someone who loves Hong Kong. And, you know, um, but yeah, in any event, I, I, I even went so far as to try to get Rob Schneider interested in the film. Rob Schneider, of course, who loves Taiwan because he's been there several times and he and I have like presented we, we basically both shilled for taiwan on, on the same stage in la um but he he did not get back to me i, I know that that's shocking to you somebody in la who's in the film industry <laughs> who says sure send me your screenplay which i did at great expense from from malaysia where i was doing the lonely planet guide I actually printed it out and sent it to him he did not get back to me. And I was shocked because my understanding is that people in, ho in Hollywood in the film industry always, what their word is bond when they say, I'll read it and get back to you. That means that they will, but apparently not, no disrespect to Rob Schneider. If you still want to, you know, do the audiobook version or something, let me know, but I've got somebody else in mind, no offense, but we can still talk. If, <laughs> if he's a fan of Drinks with Tony, I'm not sure. Then I turned it into a novel and I'm glad that I did. It works way better as a novel. And, uh, I think that it got much, much, much better as a novel. I still look at the screenplay, but I'm like, yeah, this doesn't work. And what, why, why is it better as a novel? Because so a lot of the, not a lot, but parts of the book take place inside of the mind 
of the the protagonist Rinpoche Schwartz, who is you know a reluctant uh, uh, cult leader, basically. And as he's meditating and dealing with his own complete neuroses and feelings of unworthiness, and on the written page, you know, on the page, it's him dealing with that while he's trying to you know, who she breathe in and breathe out and focus on meditation. And his neuroses is just crop up in all these ways. Doing it on the page, it, it seems to work. Doing it as a film, I still struggled with how do we do that with animation perhaps, but uh, it didn't quite work. And that would have cost a lot of money to do, which probably we could have come up with if somebody had been interested, but it would have cost more money to do it as a film, I think. If you were to adapt the book now, would it be a lot different from the original screenplay? Yeah, definitely, because so much has changed. One of the other plot points in this, it involves a um, very ambitious, I don't ever think that I use the word Republican. I, 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 or do I, I may have, but it, a very ambitious right wing congressperson with presidential aspirations who is looking to use the scheme set in motion by Rinpoche Schwartz to further her own career. Now, in the era of Trump, this did not work. It made no sense whatsoever. I had to do some heavy rewrites because originally as a screenplay, it was, you know, mid-Obama and yeah. that didn't work. When I was starting to do the final edits of the book as a novel, um, I had to address, oh, Jesus, what if Trump actually wins? How is this going to work? And then I decided that I needed to have some faith because I figured, you know what, if Trump wins again, then how it's going to affect book sales for me is the least of, you know, <laughs> my worries in the world. So I got very um, optimistic and I create, I set, and there were only a few places that I had to do this. I set the world in a, and I never mentioned Trump. I never, I never, because I, both at the insistence of my publisher and it just didn't seem to make any sense because it is a work of fiction, all characters, you know, based are, are you know, purely coincidental and all that. But um, I set it in a post Trump world where just the shadow of, you know, at some point in the past, there was a Republican presidential candidate who then led to a kinder and more gentler, you know, um, um, Democrat presidency, Democratic presidency, which of course, all the Republicans are now seeking to undermine in their own way, including this character who of course I made up, who all, all any, any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental with, uh, you know, this particular congressperson. Isn't it crazy? The, uh, this, and this is blowing my mind, you know, especially since the whole, you know, Trump narrative where like our mythology and our storytelling has completely upended. Mm -hmm. Like we can't, like, it's the things that we used to think were absurd are no longer satire or absurd comedy, they're truth. It's really, it freaks me out. When I first wrote Spinning Karma as a screenplay, one of my this is something that almost kept me awake. And I was like, this is a really cynical story. This story is incredibly cynical. And I didn't feel, I almost, not quite, but I was almost at the level where, huh, how do I feel about putting a story this cynical, you know, out into the world? Now, 2020, it is, and again, there was some editing that happened. I smoothed out some of the, the sharper edges, 
but not that much. Now, compared to what's actually been going on for the last four years, it is a lighthearted, you know, good-natured comedy set in a genuinely kinder and gentler world than the one in which we currently live. And one in which even the right-wingers in this are still, they, they are, they're playing by sort of the, the cricket rules of politics. And, you know, I've got scenes involving, you know, Chinese, you know, the Chinese government, and I've got scenes involving the American government, and I've got scenes involving a media group called Badger News. Any resemblance to any other news groups based on, you know, mammals living or dead, purely coincidental. <laughs> and it's like, compared to what, you know, any group such as Badger News might do in the real world, what they're doing in my story is genteel and funny and cute. So I think that the world's gotten a lot more cynical, which does allow me to then present this story as sort of a, a lighthearted, you know, um, um, romp, a lighthearted satire, as opposed to a scathing indictment. Yeah, it's so crazy. You know what's funny because uh, you you brought this up. The um, you know, uh, any uh, any characters resembling is you know any mm -hmm. real people is fictitious. I mean, this is what I've found is when because um, I'll start to write about people I know in real life, and some of the characters will be blends of people in real life. Mm -hmm. But then they'll you know they'll start to distill out on their own. But I almost I find out that I feel like I write more truth when I'm writing fiction. When when I'm actually, I mean, not like not not saying that my nonfiction is not true, but the gut truth, mm -hmm. like the like the gut the guttural honesty, feels deeper when I'm writing fiction, and sometimes when I'm reading fiction. I agree with you, and I think that that's because we are no longer bound by the rules of nonfiction, which we have to. There are certain rules in nonfiction where we're expected to speak and write truthfully about the situations that we're writing about. And if we go too far, we're going to be called on it. I mean, unless you're Hunter S. Thompson, you know, who Hunter S. Thompson can always, and, you know, you know, so, well, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this particular politician, you know, did Coke with me in a bathroom and then offered to sell me a gorilla, you know, in the parking lot. I don't know if that actually happened, but it sounds like it could be part of his work. And it was like, yeah, that's Hunter S. Thompson. Okay. You know, yeah. but, as a, as a regular journalist, you can't really do that. Whereas when you're writing fiction, yeah, certainly there are circumstances, there are characters, there are amalgamations, and, and certainly the, the situation that I present in here could happen. But uh, you are protected by that. Yeah, this is a work of fiction, you know? And yeah. I, I like that. And I, I think that I want to continue writing fiction only because I've done so much nonfiction already. There's a line, you know, Patrick Skye is? Mm-mm. Patrick Skye is this wonderful folk singer um, that, uh, that I grew up listening to. He's obscure, but he's got a song called uh, Reality is Bad Enough. And the line <laughs> is, reality is bad enough. Why should I tell the truth? And uh, I, I, as far as a fiction writer, it's like, yes, there's plenty of truth in there. Uh, but I, I, I like being able to write fiction because I, I no longer want to be constrained by you know, the rules of being a journalist or nonfiction, unless I'm being paid to do so, which of course I will, if, you know, yeah. if I'll be back to do that, I'll do that. But I don't, as, as somebody who's about to buy a house, I don't see myself traveling overseas, you know, much and also COVID in the next couple of years. And that being said, I'm also a little bit tired of that. So it's much easier to write fiction when you never leave your house than it is to, <laughs> you know, 
It, what's it, and uh, I think even before COVID, though, you were kind of settling down in the Pacific yeah, Northwest, right? Sure. Yeah, you were sure. kind of, you were kind of like, this is it. I'm, I'm a settler. I was moving from like a Star Trek Next Generation to a Star Trek Deep Space Nine mode, you know, yeah. where it's, it's okay. Now I want the action to come here, and I had all these grandiose plans, which is because you know one of the things in the before time, what I had been doing is I was a tour guide which of course not anymore. And so the idea is, oh, you know, I'll do these cool things. And I had done a lot of this, you know, in, in 2015, 2016, where groups of, of Chinese travelers would come over here and I would show them a good time, take them around, you know, do all sorts of cool stuff, act as their translator. And, and then I was like, oh, that's cool. That's like my little Deep Space Nine thing. I'm showing them around my place. Uh, that's not happening now, obviously, but it may pick up in the next couple of years. And, and I would hope to do that. But yeah, I've, I've done enough traveling at this point the only place that i really want to explore more in the future like i'd love to travel around and you know explore australia and new zealand uh but i'm tired man you get tired like 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 what was the last time you were on an airplane for like you know 27 hours like different flights with including the i think the most i've done is the stretch to uh to europe where it was like you know like between like uh, what do you call it layovers yeah. and stops, it's like fourteen or fifteen hours at the most. I, I used to eat that shit up, and I'm like, boom! I'd land after you know twenty seven hours and two airplane changes, and I'm in Singapore and I'm hitting the ground running, and I'm like, yeah, let me go and get the food that I love here. <laughs> now it's like I the last cross Pacific flight that I took was just Taiwan to San Francisco with a stopover in Hong Kong. It was like twenty six hours. I landed in San Francisco and I was exhausted. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to sleep for, you know, 26 hours. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this twice a year anymore. <laughs> yeah. That, and, that's, and, and writing fiction gives me an out. I think it's like, yeah, I don't have to travel so much. Anymore. And then, um, I mean, you, so you've seen so much of the world. What was it about uh, the Pacific Northwest where you went, you know what, this is, this is my, this is the spot. It, Cause, cause you had your, you had a, plethora of choices right i mean you could have dropped we, many places we we um i had lived in the pacific northwest in like for about a year in 19 it was when ross perot was running for president because i remember actually for a brief time i was a perot supporter and i went to a perot rally that was in seattle so i lived in seattle uh shortly after i graduated from school but before i sort of got the idea that i'm gonna go overseas was that pre-grunge? I mean, was that like no, pre-grunge no, no, breakout? No, it, was, it was right in the middle of grunge. I worked, oh, okay. one of the many jobs that I had was, I had one job where I worked for casual cabs, which I was a pedicab driver, and another job where I worked for a place called The Off-Ramp, which was, a, it was a grunge club, and I actually cooked breakfast for people, because at, at the time there was a rule that you could serve booze as long as you also served a meal at the end of the night. So I was basically, I would cook, you know, hash browns, toast, and eggs for like, you know, 200 people, like after all the bands were done and uh, a bunch of different bands passed by there and I got to listen to them from the kitchen. But no, this is kind of in the heart. Kurt Cobain was still alive. This was in the oh. heart of the grunge era. And yeah. for whatever reason, this is when I was traveling around a lot. I didn't last there very long. I think it was nine or 10 months, but I liked it. I had a motorcycle. I got a lot of stuff. I got a lot of living done in those nine months. And I rode my motorcycle around the state of Washington. I think at one point I rode over into Oregon and I was like, oh, this is nice. And over the course of the years that I lived in Asia, 
one of the places that I would always come back to was Seattle and Olympia because I had made friends there who I would then visit. It's like, oh, I'm passing through. Can I hang out with you for two weeks? And I would. And so I liked it. Like I lived in Olympia for about three months uh, in, in like 20, 2011, 2012, in between gigs, because I had friends who had places there. And so I would like rent rooms from them. And I liked it well enough. And then when it was time to settle down after I finished my last guide in Belize, which was right after the, uh, the last guide that I did was in Belize. And it was when the, uh, the, the Mayan, remember when the world ended in 2012? Remember? And now we're all gone because the world ended because. Yes, that's right. And now we're just all living in a simulation. I remember that I actually covered that for Lonely Planet. uh, And I went to like the top of a pyramid and, uh, you know, it was, it was super cool. But after that, I'm like, all right, I, something's changing. Yeah, the world didn't end, but something's changing in my, at that point, I think it was 2012. So it would have been, uh, you know, like 42, 43, 43 already. I was getting tired. At that point, I think I left from there and I'm like, all right, I've got friends all over and I've got a friend in Portland. It's like, yeah, if you want to settle down in Portland, you can stay in my basement until you find a place. And I did. I flew back. He picked me up at the airport. I brought them some hot sauce and stuff from Belize. And uh, then I was like, yeah, Portland's fine. And I, you know, I wound up getting my, this was back in the day when, you know, before Portland became super hot so that I could get my own bachelor apartment for $850 a month. Those days are long gone. And I did that. And I'm like, oh, this place is fine. I can settle here. And that's when I started working as a tour guide. I became sort of an expert in the Pacific Northwest simply by, you know, uh, um, dint of having been a tour guide there. And I've kind of been here ever since, except for the two and a half years that I I dragged my unsuspecting love of my life slash partner, Stephanie Huffman, uh, to Taiwan to work on Formosa Moon. So we lived there for two and a half years, and then I lived back in Taiwan. But even during that time, I was kind of like, love Taiwan, love being here, always want to keep it in my life. It's always going to be a muse to me, but I don't really necessarily, I feel like if I was going to settle down here and live here, I would have, you know, married one of the partners that I had that were Taiwanese and that didn't happen for various reasons. And that ship seems to have passed. So might as well settle down in the Pacific Northwest. And I do like it. It's green. It's lush. It doesn't catch on fire nearly as much (laughs) as, uh, although it does, it does just not near. And again, it's all relative. Yes, we certainly, we certainly do catch on fire in an alarmingly, uh, you know, often, but not nearly as much as where you're from. So. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. What, yeah. Now, what, now, when you and Stephanie got together, was it because I'm trying to remember this uh, because we have to, we, you know, I'm trying to remember from our personal experiences sure. as well. Um, and then throw it into the radio show, like, you know, pretending like it's a thing that I'm thinking yeah. of immediately. But uh, like you, part of it was like, hey, you're coming to Taiwan with me, right? If you guys were going to be together, was that kind I, of... I said something to her, like, I, I mean, I gave her the talk, which, you know, it's the, it's the standard talk. <laughs> like, let me say, let me, you might have to sit, sit down for this young lady. <laughs> well, no, it was, at, it was somewhere around the point, you know, after we had first gotten intimate a bunch of times, but before we're like, oh, you know, now we, we, we may start thinking about whether we will one day live together. I was like, look, if you're going to get serious with me, you should know that at some point I'm going to be called back to Taiwan. It's just going to happen. It doesn't matter what I say now. At some point, I'm going to be offered a reason to go back to Taiwan and I'm going to have to go there. And you're going to have to deal with the fact that at that point, we're either going to have to end the relationship or, you know, you're going to go with me. And she was like, 
okay. If you, she said, if you wait until I, she had just gone back to school. So if you wait for me to finish my degree, I'll do it. And I said, okay, it's a deal. And I kept my end of the bargain, which is uh, I went back to Taiwan to do some bike tours, but it was always like, yeah, I, I went back for three weeks and like Zoom called her every day. And, uh, you know, then th that was fine. And then I came back, of course. But then the ink was not dry on her, on her, you know, bachelor's degree from Portland State University. It's like, she was like holding, I'm like, oh, guess what? I just pitched this book idea to my publisher, Things Asian Press, and that would become Formosa Moon, although the original title could have been How I Tricked My Midwestern Born Girlfriend Into Moving to Taiwan Sight Unseen, <laughs> and what happens after. Um, uh -huh. And she was like, yeah, I could use an adventure. And the fact is we then had a publisher who, you know, was basically offering me money down, you know, offering me a little bit of an advance to actually do the book. And that was, it was an advance that paid for our trip over there and then some, and we're like, yeah, you know, how often is this going to happen? Yeah. So, but then, but this, the important thing is, is that we did it. We did the book. It took us six months to do the book. We had a great time. That's Formosa Moon. Um, and then, Within six months after that, she was already doing her, her master's degree in Taiwan. I had already gotten a job working for a Taiwanese travel company. But within a, you know six months to a year after that, we were like, okay, this is good. You'll finish your master's degree. I'll make enough money at this job so that I can then have some time to sit down and work on some fiction that I want to work on, which would later become Spinning Karma. But I don't think that we're going to wind up living here for the rest of our lives just because Taiwan is lovely, but it's hot it's sweaty. And, you know, it, it's, I, I, that whole, I got tired after a while of, uh, I, I would hit the bamboo ceiling, you know, there's a bamboo ceiling there when you're, when you're a foreigner and everybody knows about that. And although now I've known some people who have, you know, pushed through it in their seventies and eighties, you know, being offered like, you know, honorary citizenship and stuff like that. But I felt like that wasn't what was going to happen with me. And I was pining for winters and, you know, actual snow and, you know, stuff like that. So we, we then came back, but it was always the intent to come back to the Pacific Northwest. We, we did dally a little while when we last saw each other in Boston. Yeah. We were offered a house sitting gig. It was sweet in Boston where we had a free house that we could live in for three months. We had to watch two dogs. It was for a Chinese family. And uh, we loved spending, you know, that three months in Boston uh, without having to pay a dime in rent. But uh -huh. once that was over, we're like, and then winter started setting and we're like, yeah, let's drive across the country. You know, uh -huh. now it's starting to snow and it's cold here and it's Boston. So, uh, you know, we came, we came back here. To and that was about a year ago when me and you and uh, Stephanie went to that great, oh, there was that great, um, what was that? What was that Chinese food place? Uh, no, no, we, oh Christ. We had really good great soup. It was, it, was a, it was hot pot. Yeah. yeah. And I haven't, and that's, I, I dream of hot pot because you can't get a hot pot here because of COVID. And in Taiwan, you can still get a hot pot because they've beaten COVID, but we're not there. That was hot pot. I forget the name. I think that I want to say it was called Little Lamb Xiaoyangzi. I forget the name, but yeah. shout out, shout out to whatever that restaurant is, which is, you know, right. I wish, I think it was Little Lamb Hot Pot, Xiaoyang Huoguo. I think it was Xiaoyang Huoguo, Little Lamb Hot Pot. Don't quote me on that. You have to look it up afterwards. Very, very good hot pot. We loved it. Yeah, it was in Chinatown in Boston. And, and, uh, and it was cold. It was so cold and it was just rainy. And then we got in there and it was just yeah. wonderful, like, comfort. It was cold and rainy and it wasn't even winter yet. So there, that's yeah. more reason to, you know, 
make us both feel about our, our, our respective decisions to not settle in Boston. <laughs> you know, much respect to Boston, though. No, no disrespect intended. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a beautiful city. It's, uh, yeah, those winters are hard, though, man. It's a, very, it's a very erudite city, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's College the, town. What, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, College town, I've heard. And that's kind of the fun about it. Oh, crap. Can you hold on one second? Because sure. I, uh, I, I got to, like, I might have a delivery. It might be my computer. Take it. I've taken over drinks for Tony. This is Josh Brown. I've taken over drinks for Tony. Look into the camera. You will see this figure. Do not panic. Just look at Bob. What is Bob trying to tell you? Hear the dulcet sounds of J.R. Bob Dobbs. Send all your money to Joshua Brown, Joe Sampo, and PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> sorry 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 was wrong <laughs> no, I, I know you can edit that out no yeah i i know i'll i'll edit out, I'll, just, I'll edit out the uh i've been waiting for i i got a macbook air like last week and then now it's lost in the mail and it's all over the place i'm just like all right i thought that was it but all right and now back to the show back to the show See, I know, what you're, I know what you're doing because I've done audio engineering before. And whenever I had to do that, if you do something like that or whistle, then you can see right in the, that's, oh, that's spike. You don't have to bother with whatever's before it. Exactly. Yes. You, you do the clap or the, yeah, so when yeah. you look at the audio, you don't have to sit there and try to go through every Just little that. thing. Yeah. No. So then we like, we're back in and we're live. Like yeah. nothing happened. Like I, there I, was no delivery to my door. I feel like I'm sort of inside this podcast. I'm like on the back ends. What, what software do you use to do the editing? Audacity. Yeah, that's what I used for uh, Puppet Radio, Puppet Radio Theater, her old uh, radio show. That's right. That's yeah. right. How many episodes did you do of that? We did twelve. Okay. Yeah. Are they we, are they still around? Can we go? They are. They are they're still online. Uh, just Google Puppet Radio Theater and Kabu. Yeah, I think okay. that you know we had a huge following of people who worked for Kabu and maybe one or two of their you know partners, maybe maybe even a dozen people listened at a time. So it was great. Yeah. Yeah. But was that, uh, was that on uh, radio as well as online? It was on radio. It was on KBOO, which is, uh, you know, the, the progressive, you know, community radio station here in Portland where, uh, you know, I got into many arguments in 2016 about, you know, why maybe not voting, maybe not writing in Bernie Sanders wasn't the best idea. Like, nah, it's okay. Trump's not going to get elected. I don't talk to those people anymore. Yeah. Some of them I do. But community radio is just so rad because it's just, it, there's so there's something beautiful about it. Even college radio, I listen to the kids on, you know, because I used to be that kid 30 years ago. Yeah. And I listen to the kids and they're just like brimming with like wanting to learn more, but their egos are so in the way too. And they want to sound like they know everything. And you just sit there and you go, oh, you're so cute. You know nothing yet. I had a radio show on uh, a radio station, uh, WBSU, the radio voice of SUNY Brockport. And the show was called uh, Sonic Attack. And my persona was L. Ron Creighton. Get it? L. Ron Hubbard. So yeah, cults. I've always had like the idea of cults as this thing for me. And it was just basically punk rock music and weird psychedelic music and stuff like that. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I did that for like at least a year and a half. But like, I don't remember, I have no tapes survive, but I always tried to like, yeah, this is L. Ron Creighton coming at you with Sonic Attack. You always try to, but I had a lot of listeners uh, from the penal system because uh -huh. there, there was, I think it was Albion Penitentiary. There was a penitentiary 
maybe even two, where they figured out that they could call in requests. You know, they could make collect calls and I would take them. They didn't have to pay for them. So I would get like, yeah, uh, there's a collect call from a motorhead, collect call from motor, ace of spades, ace of spades. <laughs> and I, yeah, no, I can't take that call. Okay, and they'd hang up. And then I'd be like, this is going out to Albion Penitentiary, motorhead, ace of spades. Yeah. <laughs> my thinking in this is that if you get a call from somebody who's in, and it was basically like a medium or minimum level penitentiary, those people are going to get out at some point, very potentially during the time that you're still going to be living in town. It's best to not get them angry by not playing their requests. <laughs> They're being very reasonable with you by showing you that they like your show. So I would always play their requests. Uh, but That's got, amazing. Yeah, I got in trouble for that, apparently. I think I may have accepted one of the collect calls and the you know, radio station didn't want to pay for that. In any event, yeah, college radio was always fun. Oh my God. Back in the day when we used to have to actually like pay for every, every single call, I worked a temp job that I hated and they treated me like crap. As they they do always. Yeah. 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 Sometimes, sometimes it's worse than others. And I was, I had quit and I gave them two weeks notice and they were being dicks about it. And I'm like, I'm a temp. I can just walk away. You can fire me instantly. Anyway. So I had a friend in Paris and I decided to go to someone else's office and just call my buddy in Paris. Mm-hmm. And we were talking for over an hour. And that's back, you know, this is in the nineties when like you bring up a Paris charge during the day. Remember they had the, if you call during business hours, it was like yep. 10 yep. times the rate of after the evening. And I, and people were like yelling at me, like the, my, my manager was like, Oh, can you hold on a minute? And I would have them on hold and just talk to people. <laughs> just, and I heard that they, that they were like, after I left, they flipped out over how big the phone bill was and they were trying to track down who. Sure. Uh... <laughs> I, I remember that. And I remember the days when like when I had to get phone cards to call back from Taiwan and it was right. a big deal. And now it's weird the way that communication has gone. I read a science fiction story not too long ago. I forget who it was. And I'm sorry about that. But uh, it may have been Robert Silverberg. But one of the things in the story was that um, they had cars that could travel sort of on, on robot roads, not robot, you know, like you could go to sleep in your car, you could drive from LA to New York in like 16 hours because they were these super fast roads. But they, the author, and this is written in the 60s, the author still couldn't imagine a day when um, a long distance call wouldn't cost you a lot of money. So <laughs> one of the things is that the president, the president wants you to call him. Don't worry, you can do it reverse charges. The president doesn't think you need to pay for this call. And that's like a big deal. That's like, oh, yeah. The guy was a scientist. Like, I'm a scientist. I can't afford an expensive call from L.A. to Washington that might last a half an hour. Right. Like, oh, okay. Those numbers used to tick off, even in the Bay Area, because um, I, I, I remember when I had, uh, you know, when I had Jehovah's Witness girlfriends when I was young, I'd have to, like, skateboard to a phone booth so my parents wouldn't be able to listen. Sure. And then I had my, like, whole roll of quarters, and I'd just be dumping quarters yeah. in there and go, what do you do now? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you a question, which is because you have some experience as living in a cult. Is that a safe thing to say? Oh, that's a very safe thing to say. <laughs> it's like we're in a safe room. That was a safe thing to say. And I feel totally embraced. Now, I don't. And so the closest that I have come, and again, I've, you know, I've just released a novel about a cult leader. 
And the closest that I had to do my research, and I mean, I, when I was a teenager, I used to hang out with the Hare Krishnas because you're a punk rocker in New York, they'll feed you food. And I have other experience with, you know, in Taiwan, there's a whole bunch of kooky cults that you go there and they'll often feed you, but you don't get too close to them because then they're just calling you 24 seven to come back. So I actually had to interview some people. And one of the people that I interviewed, this, this was the interview work that didn't, it only made it into the backstory of the story itself. And then probably, I just, in the same way, like Quentin Tarantino makes up backstories for all of his characters that right. never make it into the actual film. But it's nice that they're there. Like I talked to a friend of mine who had lived on the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh farm or Rajneesh Puram in here and right here in Oregon, because the, they had basically gotten a whole bunch of homeless people and hippies and, you know, teenagers to come live there so that they could rock the vote or, you know, basically get every get all of the Rajneesh Puram people elected to the town so that they could actually change the name of the town legally, which they wound up doing, but it changed back. So I had to call him and really ask him about his experiences living in a cult and whether or not the way that I was portraying it seemed about accurate. Now, I don't know if Jehovah's Witnesses are a sex cult. And clearly, you know, the cult that I've drawn out, at least in, you know, when it was really fun was, I guess what you would call a sex cult. But did my portrayal of life in a cult ring true to you? Yeah, well, it's cult is just all the 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 high control, the, the sure. control of the of the group, and whether it's a sex cult or like a Jehovah's Witnesses, are like the opposite of a sex cult, but it's right. also kind of weird because like almost everything's too sexualized. Nobody can do anything. Yeah. So there's there's just it's. It, it all comes under the umbrella of cult. So yeah, it does. It's, it's just, it's, I, I think, you know, people like a lot of ex Jehovah's witnesses will think their, their experience is really unique. Sure. But you start to look at other um, cults and other things and you're like, it's not unique. The narrative is kind of across the board yet. Um, it's just different. And it's, it's different uh, pushing of ideology, I guess. Sure. I, I feel like I did an okay job. Uh, and I say okay only because the backstory, the cult is more the ghost story to put it in the sort of the John Truby thing. But um, the way that I've described it is, oh, you know, what, what, was, what was the deal with, uh, you know, uh, Baba Avi G, who is the guru of Rinpoche Schwartz, who sort of starts the story moving. And I'm like, think about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and then aim way lower. And that's kind of what you've got. Like, uh, you know, on his best day, he wished that he could have been, you know, uh, um, um, uh, wild, wild west. I, I just said it. Um, why can't I, I, the word is just right. Oh, 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 the Osho. Osho, who became Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who yeah. became Osho, you know, but he, he wished that he could have, uh, you know, gotten that successful as a cult leader. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think that I've done a good job. I know I got interviewed by a Taiwanese, um, someone who writes in Taiwan, and apparently there are a lot of cults in Taiwan. Uh, huh. And they're, and they're, I've been to a couple of their meetings, but apparently I missed out on a lot of them. So uh, I, I see you might have to go to Taiwan in a few years. That's another book. I, and, I'm, and I'm feeling like, I mean, I did, I hung out with Falun Gong people for a while, but they didn't feed me. And so I, I you know, they didn't feed me. And, you know, there were no, unlike the, um, the, the Hare Krishnas, there were no scantily clad girls who would dance around. And so they kind of, they didn't enthrall me very much, so. Yeah, food and scantily clad girls. That's how I you mean, lure most men. 
is is the food any good as a Jehovah's Witness or is it just oh that's that's very regional so in the Spanish congregations it's fantastic if you're any anywhere near a Spanish congregation you you get friends with them right away and you go to their dance parties and you eat and you go and you hang and eat their food so I was the gringo at all the Spanish congregations and I and I probably would have been if I had you know uh been raised a Jehovah's Witness yeah that <laughs> I see you're like like going wow what would have my life have been like if I was raised Jewish? We, we were like I I was lucky in that we were raised Jewish and mm-hmm. my father was Orthodox Jewish like like oh wow yeah like with with you know the 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 shirts and the you know not quite the black fur hat but one step below the black fur hat and uh-huh. uh, my my father and my father's whole family on my father's side, they still are very religious, but my father was like the youngest son. And at some point he was like, yeah, no, this, this is not for me. And I remember when my father and mother got divorced, they were like, yeah, we're not even keeping kosher anymore. And that's when like the bacon started coming into the house. And (laughs) when I was very young, we had to separate. There was like, these, these are the plates that we use on Shabbos and these are the plates that we don't. And like when I was five or six, that fell by the wayside. Oh, wow. But was that weird for you that, cause, cause that's kind of a tradition thing where you're just like, wait a second. Now you're changing my whole world at five years old. That's kind of, that kind of has to be a mindfuck a little bit. It was weirder for my older brother who was more conscious of that switchover. But for me, it was, I was five or six. There were so many other things happening that it didn't really, I didn't, it didn't register for me. I do have a very profound memory of, and, and I say that that's when the bacon came out, but I, I don't really mean that. I don't think that my, my, I don't remember having pork in the house until I was a teenager, but I do remember that um, I went to a, a dinner that was given by my friend Glenn and they served me ham and it was ham and they didn't know. And I think it's something like, oh, are, are you allowed to eat this? Like, no, we're allowed to eat it. We're not religious. And I, had, I remember never tasting a ham steak before. And it was so good, it was like sweet. It had the pineapple on the top. And it was the way that ham steaks are, you know, in those magazines from the 1970s where they have meat inside of jello, <laughs> you know, that's like a meal, you know, this is like the ham steak with the pineapple from a can on the top. And I remember just eating a lot of it and not telling my parents about it when I got home. But uh, did you feel guilty? Yeah, probably. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I'm sure that I got over it. Uh, at that time, my older sister was also dating uh, an Irish Catholic boy. And so I'm sure that there was all, my parents were getting this from all quarters, you know? So they, they knew that, 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 that reality was, was crumbling, you know, without yeah. any help from them. <laughs> You're like one well. son's eating ham. The other one's going full Gentile. Yeah. Basically. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Joshua Samuel Brown on drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Spinning Karma. Hey, Happy New Year, and I'll see you next Wednesday when my guest is Mo Davio.